So I'm on the laptop, imagining my feet sloshing through mud as I attempt to grind out another narrative for the Beneath Your Feet podcast. Wedged in with poor wit and shoehorned analogies, I notice a lot of proper nouns. Like, a lot. Words that I would not understand had I not just finished the Silmarillion for the third or fourth time. I fret for my audience, modest as it is. Partly why folks give up on this great work, the aforementioned Silmarillion, is because it has about as many proper nouns as the Bible, or War and Peace. It gets confusing, so I whittle as many as I can out, but the thought worries me. How can I get people into the dirt of Middle-earth and neglect the shale rock buried so deep? I know. I'll make an episode to provide some terms, a vocabulary list per se, a brief historical overview of the tales of Middle-earth, but I'm going to need some help. We didn't even get to talk about whether Balrogs have wings or not. Alboros is the host of Lotrocast, a student at Professor Corey Olson's Mythgard Institute and all-around good dude. I had a chat with him about the basics of Tolkien's work. This is our conversation, lightly edited. I'll warn you, though, it's my first Skype call, so the quality is not so good. Enjoy. Before we get started, why don't you uh, share with the people your, your expertise and your experience with the histories of Middle-earth and the work of uh, the professor? Um, all right, so um, my name is Alboros. I am a longtime fan of Tolkien's work. Um, I am the host of the Lotrocast podcast, and I am also one of the first students to attend Mythgard University. Um, Mythgard is a new school focusing on Tolkien's work um, that Professor Corey Olson has put together, and uh, I'm one of the first students to be in it, so um, it, it's kind of in my wheelhouse. I really like the the content, and the class I'm currently in is about um, how some of the 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 lore and mythology of um, our real world has played into how Tolkien wrote Middle Earth and some of the history that he has. Um, I've read Tolkien since I was um, a preteen. And that is quite a long time ago, as I am now uh, have some preteens of my own in my family. <laughs> um, and I have actually been working my way through not just Lord of the Rings, not just The Hobbit. I've read The Silmarillion, and I've read all of the, well, not all of them, but I've gotten my way through most of the, um, the, the books that um, Christopher Tolkien has kind of pulled together from. Uh, the histories uh, of Middle-earth. Yeah, the histories of Middle Earth, the, all the other books. So I can't say I'm an expert, but I really do enjoy kind of the the complexity of this world. So um, definitely excited to talk about it. Cool. Well, uh, before anything else, you you are the first Myth Guardian, so I think that is qualification enough, at least, <laughs> at least to have you on my show. You know, that was funny when uh, we were in class and. I was told I was the first one to enroll in class. I was like, okay, th th I should get a title in-game just for that. <laughs> um, but let's start with what you were uh, describing in your first uh, Tolkien course there, just kind of the general context of, of Middle-earth, how it is Tolkien's creation, but it bore a lot of influences from Germanic mythology and things like that. Uh, like even, even the term Middle-earth uh, comes from Midgard, right, or something like that from, from uh, the Norse mythology. You know, I, I believe it does. Um, more of the stuff that I saw, or what, I, what I've been learning in this class, and, and I'll, let me start at the beginning. The class is really designed to look at um, a lot of the lore from North mythology, um, from Finnish mythology, and how that all played into how Tolkien was writing his works. Mm -hmm. And, like, a real clear-cut example is actually... 
um, a story that we're working on right now. There's there's a book out that Christopher Tolkien put out, which is kind of a a retelling of a core myth that Tolkien had um, in the Silmarillion, and it's called the Children of Huron. And the the story of the Children of Huron, and I, I'm sorry for those of you who have not read it. But spoiler alert is basically about the fall of this family. They've been cursed right. by Morgoth, who is basically Sauron times a million. He's if Sauron's bad, Morgoth is the devil. Um, yeah, that's one and, thing I always encourage people to read uh, the Silmarillion because it's like you think Sauron's a bad guy, but then you read about Morgoth, and you're like, wow, that was uh, like you said, that's kind of his version of Satan. Exactly. I mean, I mean, Sauron's bad, but but this guy's actually the whole fallen angel concept. I mean, and Sauron is too, but he's like a minor fallen angel when you when you get into the the real history of the Middle Earth. The punchline to this is actually very compared to um, one of the myths or stories in the Kalevala, which is a collection of Finnish myths. And what I found out in class is that Tolkien actually took the story of Kalervo and re- kind of like rewrote it and, and put some more context behind it because the original story in the Kalevala is this, you know, this kind of this Finnish poetry and it doesn't really give a whole lot of background as why people are doing the things that they're doing. So Tolkien took that myth and rewrote it and put kind of filled in the blanks for the story. Mm-hmm. So it, it's just it's it's interesting to see how even though he's creating his own myths, you can see a direct influence that these myths have on his story. Right. And am I am I right? And when I when I say that uh, he was almost jealous of uh, you know Finland and the other Nord- Nordic countries and kind of their wealth of mythology, whereas his uh, native England did not have that mythology? I think that that's actually pretty well known. He, he started writing the Lord of the Rings and um, all of his histories of Middle-earth exactly for that reason. What right. his feeling was is that England didn't have one of their own. I mean, they had stories, but they weren't the deep-rooted mythology that explained why things were the way they were. Right, and he, he didn't think that uh, King Arthur was quite English enough. He was kind of a Roman you know, amalgam. Exactly, and actually, I think it was. Uh, I, I, I'm not really good with King Arthur, but I think part of it was even based off French literature as well. Yeah, or yeah. Dirty so the Normans had to come and invade and bring their myths with them. Exactly. So he wanted to create something of his own, and he. It's funny as you read through the stories, and and I know we were going to talk about some of the different ages. Yeah. I mean, he has direct references. Um, well, not direct references. There are some really heavy references to things that make. You know, England, kind of that mythical island, which mm-hmm. I think people continue to refer to it as. Well, before we, uh, you know, go off onto these great stories about the Silmarillion, let's inform the people about what exactly we're talking about. Because what, what we had discussed uh, about, you know, our talk is providing a bit of a working vocabulary for folks who may not be as familiar with the Silmarillion or, or even um, the appendices of the Lord of the Rings. Why don't we start by talking about uh, the Ainur? kind of who they are, what they do, and um, who some of the important ones are. So, the Einar are, it's funny, it, Tolkien never liked having them called angels, but I think the easiest way to understand them is that they're angels. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way, it, the way it kind of works in Tolkien's mythology is Iluvatar is God, uh, and that's a pretty clear um, that, that's a pretty clear um, link. Um, yeah, God, in his, God with a big G. A God with a big G. He is the overall Lord of everything. He is God. And he has these angels, though Tolkien didn't like that term. He sometimes and, called them uh, powers, didn't he? Like with a capital P? 
Um, yes, they were powers, and and it's funny. He, one of the other people, and I think it may have been um, uh, Professor Olson on one of his podcasts. He talked about him like somewhere be, being between full blown angels and the gods of like um, Roman mythology or Greek mythology. Yeah, that's mythology. a good way to think about it because they kind of represent different things too, like the Greek gods did. And the w- the way that they that he writes them is that they're not like dedicated like the Greek gods are to like oh um, you know Apollo was the god of the sun or mm-hmm. Zeus was the god of lightning. Um, he wrote it in such a way that that, that just happened to be what they kind of lent themselves to. Right. So um, the Einar are basically these powers, and the Einar um, are used by or. Iluvatar and, Einar, and the Einar create the music of the Einar, which is basically the song of creation. And then when the Einar, when the world is created, he kind of lets some of the Einar go to Middle-earth or, or go to this created realm. And they are the Valar and the Meyer. So if you think about it, the Einar, the, the ones who are still the Einar are the ones who have not left, you know, Iluvatar's, call it heaven. The Valar and the Meyer go to... Um, Middle-earth, and they're the ones who end up being kind of the caretakers um, for Middle-earth. Okay, I'm glad you made that differentiation, because I think when I was talking about the gods, thinking more about the Valar. Um, right. Yeah, and I guess you're gonna, about to get to that, so I'll let you keep talking. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, the Valar are the ones that I think most people associate with, with Middle-earth, and, and for those who have not read anything other than Lord of the Rings or um, The Hobbit, even in those writings, there is some um, some references to uh, to to these lords and uh, you know the the queens of uh, the uh, the Valar and the Maiar. Um, specifically, Sauron is a Maiar. Mm-hmm. He was um, kind of one of these lesser angels who, when Morgoth basically kind of broke away from the Valar who were there, he followed him. He was one of the fallen angels. Um, some of the other Valar that, that come into the story, um, either directly or indirectly, are Manwe, and he's kind of like the king of the Valar. And he's he's not the most powerful one um, Morgoth was, and Morgoth was originally called Melkor, because, you know, Tolkien liked to have 30 different names right. for everything. Yeah, not just one. Yeah, not not just one. He he had to name him about six different times. Hey, and I think what that was, I mean, if if I'm, if my, in my simple mind, I need one name for something. Yeah. I think he just had so many great ideas, he couldn't use all his names. So yeah. he just wanted to get as many into the stories as he could. He liked the language too much. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, so if you think about the Valar, there were a number of them that were kind of like the main ones to be concerned with. There was um, Manway, who was kind of the king of the Valar, and he was kind of the leader. And then Melkor, who ends up becoming Morgoth, is kind of like the neck, or he's actually the most powerful. And if you think about um, like the the Christian stories of the fall of um, Satan or Lucifer, Melkor is basically that. He is the most powerful of the Valar or the Einar in general from kind of the way I interpret it. And when he falls, he does kind of like what Satan does. He took half of the kingdom of heaven with him, and maybe half is too much, but he basically took a huge following of these... Exactly. And that's where the war starts. That's where some of these spirits like the the Balrogs mm-hmm. come from. Um, so those are kind of like the two like big guys. And then there's Ulmo, who's Lord of the Waters, and he plays really early into the, the migration of the elves um, from Middle-earth to Valar and then um, 
in a, in a way a little bit of, of how they migrate back. Mm-hmm. Um, there's Ale, who is kind of the master smith. He's the master crafter. Um, and he is the one Valar who creates a race that you know is in the stories that's not directly created yeah. by Iluvatar, and it's the dwarves. Yeah, that's and, a great story. Uh, just in, in the simple fact that I love the dwarves, and I think they're probably the coolest race, uh, give or take. Um, but also that um, it, p- it provides a very good contrast between the good guys, the Valar, and Morgoth. Because Al- yes. Aule makes the dwarves, and then God comes in, and uh, you talk about wanting one name for things. I always call Iluvatar God. That's just easier. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so God comes in, and he's like, you made these dwarves. Like, I, you didn't have permission. And Aule's like, all right, well, you know, you're God, and you can just smash him if you want. Um, and then, or no, he says, I'm going to smash him. And he, he, I guess he picks up his hammer because he's about to just crush him. And yep. he notices the little dwarves kind of cowering because God gave the dwarves life. Uh, so it's cool because Aule, this you know good guy, uh, submits to God, and God kind of gives him this gift of the dwarves, um, even though the elves may not call the dwarves a gift. Uh, yeah. Whereas Morgoth creates the orcs, you know, by twisting uh, creation. So it's it's a lot of meaning to it, um, but it also provides uh, you know a contrast between the characters. Oh yeah, and it, and it gets into you know that that main like you said that main story of when you submit to the will of Iluvatar or God. You know he's willing to work with you. He may not work with you the way he thinks you think he's supposed to, but he's he's willing to work with you. Whereas you know Melkor was basically trying to take everything over, and Morgoth was trying to take everything over, and he couldn't create life on his own. He could only twist what was already there. Yeah. And I, I always love that story too. Of you know basically all of these things that he creates are really just twisted versions mm-hmm. of the things that were already in Middle Earth. Yep. You know the orcs were the elves, the trolls were the were the ants. Um, and there's there's some other ones in there as well. Definitely. So we've got the Ainur uh, as kind of the big overarching classification. Then we got the Valar, and then we've got the Maiar. Um, let's talk about the elves for a bit, because um, I've mentioned on the show, and I know you have on yours as well, about the different the different kinds of elves. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. That's a big topic. Where do we start with that? Um. So th- th- I think the best place to start with the elves is is in the beginning. Okay. So. And, and it's funny because the story of the elves is actually echoed with the, the story of the humans. If if you think of the map of Middle Earth, you know where we are is really this upper left-hand quadrant. You know we've got, um, you know we've got the area of the Misty Mountains and everything mm-hmm. west of there. We've got you know the the Anduin River that runs through um, you know um, Mirkwood. You've got a little bit of Mordor because really, if you think about it. The only things that that occur in Mordor from the story's point of view are the battle at the Black Gate, which really isn't in Mordor, and the destruction of the Ring. And if you look at where that volcano is, it's like right inside Mordor. Yeah. Um, but we don't have anything to the south or to the east where like the Easterlings come from or the Men of Umbar come from. So if you think about that map, the Elves wake up on the eastern side, outside of what we have on the map. They wake up in this area of darkness. And they start to they start to head west, um, and as they're heading west, it's the the Valar realize, and I think it was um, is it Tulkus the hunter? Um, yes. Or, or not Tulkus. It was it's uh, Orame. Orame. There you go. Orame the hunter. He's another of the the upper class Valar, and yeah, he. Class, I like that. <laughs> yeah, you know he li- he lives on the east side. Um, <laughs> 
But he goes, you know, he's one of the Valar who kind of goes to Middle-earth in its early stages, and he comes across the elves. And he's like, well, we got to get these guys out of this, this darkened land, because at this time they kind of knew that, um, you know, Morgoth was going bad. And he's like, well, let's get them from Middle-earth, and let's get them to Valar, which is kind of this island where all the, the Valar live. Mm-hmm. Or, I'm sorry, Valinor, Valinor, which is where all the Valar live. So the elves start to splinter once they're kind of told this. So um, the way it works is that three of these elf lords are, are brought to um, Valinor by Orame. And they're kind of shown the sights and told, hey, you know, you're, you're one of the people of Iluvatar. You're one of the children of Iluvatar. Come and live with us. You know, we'll protect you and we want to we take care of you and we want you to be part of this, you know, heaven that we live in. So the three elf lords return to, to Middle-earth, and they tell the, the hosts that, you know, hey, we're, we're all going to head west, and we're going to do this. And that's when the first splitting occurs. So there are some elves who are like, we're not going to go. We're, we're not going to accept these summons at all. And these are called the Avari. And it, basically, they're just elves who stay where they're at and don't go any further west. And, and kind of the way I read this is they fall out of the story. Yeah. And then you've got, um, so you've got these hosts that continue to start heading west, um, but some of them also start to, to break off. So the Teleri um, get to the Misty Mountains and are afraid to cross them. So even though they initially if, uh, accepted you know, the summons to Valinor, they, they only get so far and then they quit. At this point, we had some technical difficulties. We pick up in discussing which elf kindreds made it over the Misty Mountains. So the, the elves that make it over the mountains, they actually get on an island that um, uh, Ulmo brings, and they take the island over to uh, Valinor. And the, the two races of elves that get there are the Vanyar and the Noldor. And the Vanyar are the ones who actually stay in Valinor, and the Noldor are the ones who actually, through a bunch of other stuff that happens, go back to Middle-earth to fight against Morgoth. And would you say the Noldor are... I mean, I, I like to think of them as the most important elves because all, all the big names in the stories kind of come out of the Noldor line. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. And, and one of the ways it was explained, and I don't know if it's explained either in um, one of Professor Olson's podcasts or if it was an article I read, but basically the closer you get to Valinor, the, 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 the better you become. Um, that just being around or even close to the, Val- the Valar almost makes you a, like a better person, not just right. in, oh, I'm a good person, but the, it makes you taller, stronger, fitter. And so basically the Noldor, when they come back to Middle-earth, are better elves than the Teleri are. They're the Terminator elves. Yeah, they're the Terminator, exactly. Um, but yeah, I would agree. Those, they, they seem to be the most important elves. I mean, I believe um, around half-elven, you know, he, yep. he, actually, he actually comes from that line. You've got... Um, Galadriel. Galadriel. You've got uh, uh, in the Shipwright. Yep. All of them are, are, are Noldor, and they're kind of the main characters in the stories, both in The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, but also in a lot of the early part of the lore as well. Definitely. So so the, why do the Noldor come back? So, so the, the, the short story of this is when the, Valin- uh, when the elves are in Valinor, um, they learn all the, the magic and the crafting that the Valar have to teach them. And there's an elf named uh, Fainor, who is a master craftsman. And he captures the light of the... Remember how we were talking about the sun and the moon early on? 
Well, one of the attempts to enlighten the world was that there was a, a tree that had yellow leaves and a tree that had silver leaves. And they were the light of the world, and they were in Valinor. And Feanor um, crafts these three jewels called the Cimarils that capture the light from the trees. And then the trees are poisoned and killed, and the Valar basically tell Feanor that they can break the Cimarils and bring the trees back to life. And he says, no, these are mine, I've created them, you can't have them. And obviously this kind of puts him at odds with the, Val- uh, with the Valar. And then during a feast, Morgoth returns to Valinor and steals the Cimarils. So Feanor and his family basically are like, well, we are swearing a blood oath that not only are we going to get the Cimarils back from Morgoth, um, the the Cimarils are only to be held by a member of Feanor's family. And that causes all kinds of (laughs) drama to go down throughout the whole first stage. Oh, yeah. The the Cimarils are central to so many stories. I mean, um, but basically, the elves rally around Feanor and return to um, Middle-earth to fight against Morgoth. And it all goes downhill from there. Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> exactly. It all goes downhill from there. All right, um, so, so we've got the Avare who stayed, the yep. Vanyar, they're the ones that made it to Valinor, and stayed in Valinor, Yep, the smart ones. Uh, the Noldor, who go to uh, Valinor, heaven, if we're going to put it in kind of, you know, the yep. theological terms, and come back. Uh the Teleri, um, and some of whom, and this is something that you didn't mention, but you can correct me if I'm wrong. The Teleri, the ones who stayed uh, east of the Misty Mountains, kind of in, in what became Mirkwood, are the Sylvan Elves. And then, I don't know if they're still the Teleri, but then we have the Sindar, who are the ones in Beleriand who create the Sindarin language, which kind of becomes the main language of Middle-earth. Yeah, once the Noldor return you start to get a lot of, like, mixing of the different elves. Right. So, you know, you might have one um, Sindarin elf, you know, kingdom led by a Noldor because the right. Noldor were, this, you know, the higher elves. But the Sindar elves are kind of a subset of the Teleri. Okay. Um, but there are some Teleri who end up being part of these other elven kingdoms. So it gets a little bit messy once the yeah. Noldor return. <laughs> the Noldor messed everything up by coming back. Jerks. Yeah. <laughs> Brought right, so down the property values and everything. <laughs> All right, so we've got the elves. Uh, let's talk about um, the different kindreds of men. Because the main ones who... Um, we talked about the Noldor kind of being the main elves who, who show up in all the stories, uh, all the way up through the story of the Lord of the Rings. The main men of the stories are the Edain, which means elf friends, Right. Right. So basically, the men kind of follow the same track that the elves have. So they wake up on the east side of the land and march through darkness, and they come into what is now kind of the Middle Earth that we're, we, we know and love. You know, well, maybe not know and love, but the, the Middle Earth of the First Age. And you're right, there's, there's the three different houses. There's the House of Bjor, the House of Haleth, and the, ha- the House of Hador. Um, the House of Hador is the house um, that the children of Huron eventually come from. Right. And these large houses um, kind of represent the best of the men. And there right. are other men out there um, who kind of fall and become um, kind of these Easterlings that we hear about. These are people who haven't made it all the way into Middle-earth proper, I guess you could call it. Um, the people 
that are really central to the stories are really the, the, the House of Heleth and the House of Hador. I'm looking at some of the notes that I have. Um, the House of Bjor was uh, nearly wiped out by Morgoth. Yeah. Um, and they end up merging with the House of Hador. And those two groups end up becoming the Numenorians, who are right. really prevalent in the second and the first part of the third age. And then the House of Haleth, um, actually, I don't know much about. Um, Where did Baron come from? Was he from the House of Hador? Um, actually, you know what? Let me get out my handy-dandy um, family chart that's in my Children of Huron book, and I can tell you exactly. I'm glad you came prepared. Yeah, I've I had it open, and then, of course, I closed right. it. <laughs> so, Baron is the house of... He is the house of Baor. Okay. Um, so, he's he's one of the houses that ends up getting nearly wiped out. But he's he's the main hero of that house. And then, with the house of Hador, you've got the heroes of um, Hador himself, uh, Galdor his son, Hurin his son, and then... Kind of the last one is Turin, his son. Um, Elrond is a descendant of Hurin's brother, Hjor. Hmm. And he ends up becoming, um, and I know it sounds odd that Elrond's a elf and he's descended from man. That's a whole story about our Aaron, uh, our, um, Arendel uh, mm-hmm. and how he's kind of given this gift of his children being able to choose whether they want to be men or elves. Right, so the, like you said, uh, how the men kind of follow the same cycle, if you like, of the elves, where the elves get mixed up between the Noldor and the Teleri and all the other kindreds. Uh, it's similar with the Edain, these elf friends, these best of men. And they all, um, after the end of the First Age, they kind of become one, one people in the Numenorians. And yep. then the Numenorians become uh, the lords of Arnor and Gondor, who become the rangers uh, that we know and love at the time of the Lord of the Rings. Exactly. And then you have all these other you know, clans of men, um, like the Dunlings, that we, you know, if you're, you're currently playing some of the Endgame stuff in Lord of the Rings online, uh, the Dunlend, uh, Dunlendings are, are not any other part of the houses. You've got the Easterlings, who are people who have not made it all the way through. You've got the, the Corsairs of Umber, who are actually a mix of... Um, Kind of what what are sometimes referred to as dark Numenorians, right. um, so th- but yeah, when you're talking about the Numenorians, it's really kind of the descendants of these three houses, right? And that's one thing I really like. Um, we keep going off on these tangents. We're trying to just get through the basic terminology, <laughs> but um, everything kind of diminishes. And we're you know if we're speaking in Tolkien's terms today, present day here in the real world, we're living in the fourth age. Um, but everything that was good in the third age comes from the first age. Um, in our world, we think about things uh, going from cavemen to space. Things are getting better as time progresses. In Middle Earth, um, things are kind of getting worse as time progresses. Um, you talked about how the the elves, the Noldor, who came from Peven, Valinor, um, were bigger, better, faster, stronger because they had spent time with the gods. Um, the men who are the best of men, you know, become the Numenorians, are that way because they interacted with the elves who had interacted with um, the gods. And then it kind of all goes downhill from there to the time of um, Ar- well, the, Ar- well, Aragorn. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Ba- basically, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, Tolkien's stories are all about, I mean, 
almost everything you read it talks about you know the ruins of the old kingdoms yeah. you know how things were better how you know in the second age you know the the the, the Numenorians were able to field an army that made Sauron quake in his boots yeah. you know you had the elves you know the elven armies that were standing toe to toe with Morgoth would have wiped Sauron off the map and everything diminishes over time because they're they're severed from Valinor yeah absolutely and that says a lot about his worldview, which would be a totally different podcast. Oh, yeah, it'd be a bunch <laughs> of different podcasts. Yeah, it'd be a series. Yep. All right, so we've been kind of um, hinting at and touching on the different ages of the world. Um, when we say the first age, we're talking about the first age of the sun, right? Like, not the time of the trees that you mentioned before. Yeah, I mean, because really, the, the way... I kind of bucket the bucket it, and, and I think how most people do is, is there's the first, second, and third age, and that's when there's things going on in Middle Earth itself. Right. And I think when you're talking about like you, you know the year of the trees, the years of the lamps, those are all things that happen in Valinor prior to anything really occurring in Middle Earth. And then you get the first age, and that's when the elves awake, and that that's really kind of the start of the history of Middle Earth. Mm-hmm. And the first age is all about kind of some of the stories that we've already talked about. You know, the elves are coming across the land. Um, Orme first learns about them. Ulmo brings that, you know, brings, you know, the Noldor and the Vanyar over to Valinor. You've got the the, the, the story of Feanor and the Cimarils, um, the Noldor return. And then they kind of set up these kingdoms um, to wage war against um, uh, against Morgoth. And there's a number of different times where, you know, Morgoth is either um, captured, and actually he's he's even yeah. captured once, you know, prior to the first stage and kind of let go again, or he's kind of captured, you know, or he's either kind of blockaded in his um, in his um, his, his underground kingdom. I think it's called Altum Altumno. I think Altumno yeah. or Ang- Angband. I get them mixed up. Yeah, and but but basically, you know, he he, he gets kind of. He, he's locked in home, you know. He's 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 imprisoned in his home, um, and then you have a battle where where he basically comes out of um, uh, Ultumno or Angband and delivers like a terrible blow to the elves and, and shatters this um, yeah, this he alliance. Comes out oh yeah, he and, and he comes out with the dragons, the mm-hmm. Balrogs, and kicks some major butt. And, and it was the the Battle of the Unnumbered Tears. Which is kind of getting back to the, the the book I'm currently reading in the the Children of Huron is the one that kind of kickstarts that entire epic storyline, mm-hmm. and then at the end of the first age, um, basically it's gotten to the point where Morgoth is just he can't be stopped, yeah. and the Valar themselves come to Middle Earth and beat him down and throw him beyond the door you know be, beyond the world into the void, and so ends the first stage. All thanks to one Arendil, the Mariner, who, uh, who comes exactly. back in the Lord of the Rings, at least in that, that long poem of Bilbo's. Yep. And so the uh, the Valar brings such a ruckus that Beleriand, kind of the lands uh, to the west of Eriador, the lands of the Lord of the Rings and the Shire, are basically sunk, right? Yep. Every, everything is sunk. Um it, uh, they they basically kind of wreck the world by getting him thrown out. Yeah. A lot of the areas that that are part and parcel to the Silmarillion stories don't even exist in the current map. Right. You know, when you travel into Rivendell, it's cool and it's epic and it's definitely something special. But 
Rivendell's a pair compare comparison to, you know, uh, Gondolin, uh, Nargothrond, um, or, or, or Doriath, or any yeah. of these other Elven kingdoms that are mentioned in the first story. But all of these have really kind of disappeared and and, and gone away. Yeah, and that's um, partly why I'm looking forward to Gondor in the Lord of the Rings Online because prior to this, the coolest architecture in the game has basically been Moria. And like we said, things seem to diminish for, with time in Middle-earth, so like the hobbits and the people of Bree don't really know how to build stuff. The Gondorians at least still remember how to build some cool stuff. Oh, yeah. I mean, and that's one of the reasons I want to see... I, I can't wait to see Isengard. Yeah. Um, because that's, that's you know, like old, old stonework from, from when the Numenorians were in charge. Right. So, I'm, yeah, I agree with you. I cannot wait to see the, the, the construction of both of those areas. Okay, so the first end ages... Uh, first, oh, I said that wrong. <laughs> the first age ends with the sinking of Beleriand and the Edain, the elf friends who we talked about before, uh, did such a good job that they get this island to call their own. And we enter the second age, which is sometimes called the Age of Numenor. Right. And Numenor is really central to the second age because it is, it is the kind of the rise of Numenor and its subsequent fall. So Numenor is, if you want to think about it, it's kind of like Atlantis. Right. It's it's this island off the coast of Middle Earth. It's been put there by the Valar for the the Edain um, because of their service during the War of Wrath, um, which is the war that eventually gets Melkor kicked out and put beyond the void. And they start a kingdom there, and everything starts out hunky dory. They have their own kingdom. They're friends with the elves. And, and their first it, king was uh, Elros, right? Elrond's brother. Exactly. So, um, and maybe it's it's a good thing to kind of cover uh, Arendelle the Mariner. Mm-hmm. So, um, basically, the the short story of this is is that the war with Morgoth is going poorly, and Arendelle decides, you know what? I'm going to go get help. I know I'm not supposed to go to Valinor. I know if I go there, I'm going to be struck dead because of kind of the rules that they've put in place that men are not, men are not supposed to go there. Right. But he says, we need help. So he gets on this boat, he goes to Valinor, and the Valar see him, and they're like, fine, we'll come back and we'll help out. And his sons, Elros and Elrond, are then kind of given a choice of, you know, because of what your father has done and, 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 and how your family has served, we will let you either, you know, be as a man or, or be as an elf, and have the long life and, and the ability to come to Valinor when you die, or we'll let you stay as a man, but we will give you life beyond what a normal man would have. You will be the kind of the high man. You will be a, you know, a man stronger than others. And Elrond becomes an elf, and Elros becomes the first king of the Numenorians. And all the Numenorians, all the Edain, are blessed with this longer-than-average life, um, they're blessed with basically better physical stature and intelligence. And Numenor basically becomes kind of these stories that you, you'd hear of Atlantis, you know, where they have technology way beyond what anybody in Middle-earth proper has. Um, the, the story of Isengard or Orthanc, you know, the Black Tower there, is that it's stone that has been quarried that is unbreakable um, and sealed through a way that only the Numenorians know. And that once Numenor falls that way is lost. So, again, kind of that diminishing that comes on. Meanwhile, back in Middle-earth... Sauron comes back. (laughs) Now, in the first age, Sauron is barely mentioned. I mean, they mention, like, an Isle of Sauron, and that he's, like, one of the lieutenants of Morgoth. And he gets to turn into a... uh 
Is he a werewolf or a vampire that he gets I, turned into? I think he turns into a werewolf. Yeah, so that's pretty, um, that's pretty sweet. He yeah, so he does. Going for him. He's got that going for him, yeah. Um, but when Morgoth is kicked out, obviously all of his forces are scattered. And there's also a power void. So Sauron kind of steps forward and says, okay, I'm going to be the big bad evil guy, and I want the world for myself now. And didn't initially, I think it talks about um, all of the Sauron's forces, except the Balrogs. The Balrogs kind of flee and go into the mountains and wait for the dwarves to dig them out. But didn't initially Sauron kind of repent and say, all right, I'll be a good guy now? He did, though I don't know how serious that was. Had his fingers crossed. Yeah, he had his fingers crossed because, and he does that a few times because he kind of repents, then he kind of builds up this army, and then he he kind of goes to the elves and he's like, "Hey, I want to teach you guys how to do things and and some of the lore that I as a as a Maiar know." So he creates the rings of power, right. and the rings of power are created so he can start taking over, basically taking over the world. Because you know what what evil lord doesn't want to take over the world? Sure. Um, and he, so he creates the rings of power, and the elves create their three elven rings. And that's when they realize, hey, this guy is not really the good guy that we thought he was. And so a war erupts between the elves and Sauron and because of the fact that you know, this has occurred. Um, and Sauron starts to gain the upper hand, and the troops in, in or the Numenorians realize that they need to come to the elves' rescue, so they come in, and they basically defeat Sauron. Stomp him. Stomp him, and they stomp him good. Yep. And once that occurs, um, Sauron's defeated, and he's captured. And he's actually brought to Numenor, and he is at first in prison as a prisoner of the Numenorians. But the Numenorians are starting to, I, I don't want to say they're starting to fade themselves, but they're starting to kind of become less enamored with um, their lot in life. They realize that, you know, of, of all the men, they're in a better place than everybody else. But when you're still compared to the elves who live forever, never get sick, never die unless they've been, you know, physically killed, and once they die, they get to go to Valinor, they're kind of like, well, wait a minute, you know, great that we got longer life and everything, but it wants us, you know, we want more. We want more from it. get a little greedy. Exactly. And Sauron slowly goes from being a prisoner to being a kind of like a enemy consultant to being a um, honored counselor and actually kind of almost like a high priest in the kingdom of Numenor. And he convinces the Numenorians that they can get eternal life by basically going to Valinor and invading them. And the way the story is written, the Valar are actually concerned that the, the Numenorians might actually be able to pull it off. Right. And so the, the Numenorians are kind of split at this point. You've got the majority of the Numenorians who are on board with this plan, and then you've got a small group of what are kind of called the faithful Numenorians who are like, we want no part of this. Yeah. And so the vast majority of the Numenorians who are in favor of this plan all get on boats and start heading west towards Valinor. And the Valar call out and they're like, hey, Iluvatar, we're about to get our butts kicked by your children. We're not thinking that this is what you had in mind. (laughs) And Iluvatar comes in and it's one of the few times that he actually takes an active role in everything. And he sinks the fleet and he sinks Numenor. And the... 
Hence Atlantis, exactly. I mean, and that's why I love this story because I actually find Tolkien's Numenor to be a better Atlantis than Atlantis is because yeah. <laughs> there's so much more history behind it. Um, but anyway, so Numenor gets sunk, Sauron is killed, and what's interesting about this is, like, as a Maiar, you can't just kill him. I mean, his body is destroyed, but his spirit flees back to Mordor. And the one big change that occurs from this is that prior to this, Sauron was able to take on, like, a really, like handsome visage. That's how he got in with the elves. That's how the Numenorians kind of fell in love with him. Right, and even and, in uh, the Lord of the Rings online, you, there's some session play where uh, an elf is talking to him, and he, he looks just like an elf. Exactly. Yeah, you're right. You, 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 he, he looks like an elf. He talks like an elf. Therefore, he must be an elf, or, or at least a good person. Yeah. Well, after the fall of Numenor, he can't take on that fair image anymore. I mean, he's really that disembodied, you know, evil presence. I mean, there's no more hiding behind what he is. And um, so, anyways, he returns to um, he returns to Mordor and starts to kind of rebuild his army quietly and slowly. So now you've got elves who are weakened, the Numenorians are all but destroyed, and the faithful Numenorians come to Middle Earth and they put they basically settle two kingdoms: the kingdom of Arnor in the north, which is basically where Lord of the Rings Online starts. And then Gondor to the southeast, which is right outside of Mordor. And these kingdoms are set up. Oh, are you talking I'm about getting... for uh, Arnor was Elendil, and then he gave uh, Gondor to his sons, which was Isildur and Anarion, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. So um, you have the kingdoms of Arnor and the kingdom of Gondor, and these are basically very pale versions of um, Numenor. So they they still have the high men there, um, but then over um, over time, um, Sauron comes back and basically wages war against these kingdoms again. So the last alliance of elves and men is formed. The last alliance comes down to Mordor, and it's it's elves and the men from Arnor and Gondor. This last alliance comes in, and Sauron has his ring on, and he's creating havoc all over the place. Um, Elendil and Gilgalad face Sauron, and this is kind of what we've seen at the beginning of the movies, and I think people are familiar with the story. Um, but Sauron basically kills them both. Um, Elendil's sword, uh, Narsil, is broken. Isildur takes up his sword and cuts the one ring from Sauron's finger, Sauron's physical form is destroyed again, um, and the war comes to an end, and so does the Second Age. All right, so we've got the First Age, uh, the time of the elves, and again, obviously, I'm, I'm biblically minded because I like to call that the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have the Second Age, um, which is the time of Numenor, and then the first defeat of Sauron. I guess I guess he gets beat beat up twice, uh, and now the, now the Third Age begins. Yep. So the Third Age starts with, um, you know, it's actually funny. The the way I look at the Third Age, the Third Age is actually almost like the the calm after the storm. Um, You have the kingdoms of Arnor and Gondor still in place. um, And Isildur, who's now kind of basically king over both lands, decides he's going to return north to Arnor, which has always been kind of where the High King sits. So um, you had brought up that it was, you know, you had the, the, the king in Arnor, and then he gave the, the, the king, you know, the Gond- you know, kingdom of Gondor to, to his kids. Basically, that's how it's always been. You have the High King in 
Arnor and you have somebody else in Gondor who's, you know, like the second son or the, the kid or whatever. So Isildur decides he's going to return back to Arnor, and on his way back, he is a, he's ambushed by orcs. And he puts the one ring on to turn invisible, he dives into the river, the ring slips from his finger, and then he is killed. And effectively, this is where you now have a schism between Arnor and Gondor. Arnor has no king at this time except for um, one of Isildur's sons who is basically too young to be king and that kingdom comes under attack from the kingdom of Angmar um, and also splinters because you have the three sons who who basically break it up. You go from having Arnor to Arthedane, Rudar, uh, Cardalon. That's the other one. Um, so, like when you got when when you're playing in the Barrows, Cardalon is you're, you're getting all those Cardalon trinkets. That's one of the kingdoms that Arnor separated into. Right. So the the kingdom splinters because now you have three people who are kind of over the kingdom. You have Ruidar who basically goes over to um, control of Angmar. You have Cardalon that gets conquered. Um, by the kingdom of Angmar and Ruidar, and also is ravaged by disease. So you've great got, plague. yeah, the Great Plague, which also impacts Gondor, who's fighting their own cast of battles. And, and at this point, Gondor, uh, I'm going to post an article on the blog about, uh, it's a really cool article that compares locations in Middle-earth to their real-life counterparts. And Gondor, Tolkien even referred to Gondor as Italy, so Gondor is almost like the Roman Empire, uh, this time, because they've taken over parts of the of uh, Herod and the south, and they've gone far into the east and, con- and conquered a bunch of the Easterlings as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, th- there's a lot of similarities. I'm actually listening to another podcast called The History of Rome, and it, I crack up every time I hear, oh, there's the Antonine Plague, and I'm like, I wonder if that's where Tolkien got that one from. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, you've got these two kingdoms that are kind of being pulled apart because they're dealing with all of their own things that are going on, and you're right, in Gondor, you know, they've expanded, they've gone east and south, and just like the Roman Empire, they start to kind of fall apart and collapse in upon themselves. You've got a plague that impacts them, it's the same plague that impacts Arnor. You've got um, one king that's put on the throne by part of Gondor, because they thought the other king was dead, and he still wants to be king, but then the other guy comes back, so now he's the usurper. Um, he's destroyed, but in that, you know, you're fighting a, a civil war, so you've, you know, you've lost that as well. You've got the kingdom of Arnor that is, you know, two-thirds of it are already either taken over or have fallen to Angmar. And then um, you have the last king of Arthedane, uh, Arvindui. Um, he ascends the throne, and as that kingdom is attacked, he calls for help from the elves and from Gondor, and help doesn't arrive in time. And Arthur or uh, Arvindui, um, he tries to flee. And if you've played in Forkel, um, the boat up there—it's his spirit that's at the boat, right. which I think is a, a real nice nod from um, Turbine. I like how they've incorporated a lot of this history um, into the game itself. It's just not oh, we're following Frodo towards Mordor. I mean, there's there's a lot of the history that they've built yeah, into it. They've definitely milked it. It's very cool. Yeah. So now you've got the kingdom of Arnor is basically gone. You've got Gondor who eventually runs out of of royal heirs and and the kingdom is turned over to um, 
the um, the steward of Gondor and, and that line of of people who ends up being you know in, in the movies the last steward is Denethor, um, who basically is is thinks he's king in all but name. Yeah. And that kind of sets the stage for what happens in The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. So you've got both of these lands that are diminished. One is at least still calling itself a kingdom. One has, has broken up into these smaller you know, kingdoms and cities like Bree. You know, the hobbits are kind of in their own area. And that whole area is kind of protected by the Dunedain, who are the survivors of the fallen kingdom. Right, who are also the descendants of Numenor, who are the descendants of the Edine of the First Age. <laughs> so exactly. The rich, rich history. Um, yep. But one, one event of the Third Age is worth noting, um, is, uh, if, I, if I read correctly, was the year 1000 of the Third Age, when uh, five old, weird-looking dudes uh, show up at, um, at Cirdan's ports. And those are the wizards. Um, the three we, that are named specifically in Lord of the Rings are, of course, Gandalf, Saruman, also Radagast. And then there were the blue wizards. You can help me out with this. Anatar and Palando, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, those um, are. That's right. Yeah, and I think he just names those in his letters. So that's like you know, fringe Tolkien history. Um, but they are. I think I mentioned this before. They are Maiar. They are Correct. actually spiritual beings. And what is their purpose in Middle Earth? So after the War of Wrath, where the Valar come back and they, they basically kick Morgoth out and they, they kind of wreck the world, um, or, or at least significantly give it a facelift, <laughs> um, there, there's kind of this idea that we're not going to interfere directly anymore. Um, and as they realize that there is still evil in the land um, and, and the, the way things are going, things are not going in the right direction with how the, you know, the Numenorians are trying to come, you know, had tried to come over, um, and and take over Valinor, they realize that something needs to be done, but they can't go back and do it themselves. So they decide to take five of the, the Maiar, so these are kind of that lower-level power, and send them back to Middle-earth. And they strip them of the majority of their Maiar powers, um, but send them back as old men. And they're not to engage Sauron directly, but they're to inspire and lead... Um, the people of Middle Earth to stand up to the evil that Sauron represents, and, and kind of the way I get it is with the with the war against Morgoth, it was like we need to kick him out because he's evil, yeah. and if we get rid of Morgoth, then the world will be a happy place and there will be no more evil. And when Sauron comes back, it's kind of like that. Well, you know what? We got rid of the big 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 bad guy, and evil is still here. And I think kind of the way I read into it, and this is just me, is that. Where in the where when the Valor came back it was specifically to get rid of Morgoth, the 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 wizards that are being sent there are are sent to inspire people to stand against evil in general and Sauron specifically. That's good. So and then with the with the wizards, um, Saruman obviously is Saruman the White and he is head of the council which includes Gandalf, Elrond, um, Galadriel, and some of the other elves. Um, Gandalf is Gandalf the Grey. He is um, kind of more of a wanderer. I almost when I when I read the stories, he almost seems to me to be kind of like the scout. He's the one kind of going out, looking around, seeing what's going on. He seems to be much more active. Where Saruman seems to be more like a a general or a quarterback in a way, yeah. where he like s- stays home and he tells people what to do. <laughs> and then Radagast 
the way he's written is really kind of interesting because he's obviously in the story, um, but how he's written, it's almost like he's kind of lost his his calling. Mm-hmm. Whereas Saruman goes evil because of his calling, and Gandalf stays on the calling, and he's trying to do what they were sent to do. Radagast almost kind of falls in love with nature and kind of pulls himself back. Now, in the game, he's obviously much more involved. Like, if you're in the um, the Lone Lands, he's central to all of, I think it's what, the Epica storyline book two? Yep, the whole uh, Red Swamp thing. Yeah, the whole Red Swamp thing. So he's very active in the game, but how he's written in the stories, I don't get that same level of activity. It's almost like he's almost inconvenienced to be, you know, to be helping Gandalf or to be passing messages along, even in the little way he is kind of brought into the story. Yeah, he'd rather be cataloging birds or something. Exactly, or, you know, playing with mold. <laughs> um, Alatar and Polendo are the blue wizards, and they're actually not in the story, but they head further east. And it's funny because when I originally read that, I kind of took it to be more like they had turned into a Radagast type where they were like, well, we're just going to go do our own thing. And I heard somebody else, and this may have either been through some, I don't think it was class discussion, maybe it was one of the the Tolkien Professor podcasts, but the other theory or the other thought behind this was is that they actually were doing the work of the wizards or the Valar um, just further east because we know that there are still men and we know that there are still elves east of the land that we are, you know, we, we consider to be Middle-earth. So one of the other reasons that maybe they continue to head east is that they're trying to rally these troops and powers in the lands that we aren't directly interfacing with. Yeah, and one thing that uh, it's interesting that you bring that up because I, I believe it's in the letters he says that they they also, he didn't flesh out the stories, but those two also fell away in the same way that Saruman and Radagast did. Uh, and he said that he believed that it's funny the way he talks about his stories, like, you know, this, this, they're just histories he hadn't discovered yet. But he yeah. said he, uh, he believed that they were responsible for creating some of the cults in the East. So they kind of uh, fell away and um, took to some kind of uh, evil cultish behavior, at least in his we- mind. Yeah, and, and that would fit with everything that, that we've seen in these stories where, you know, even the best of intentions go to hell. Yeah, absolutely. To kind of begin to wrap things up, the Third Age ends with the departure of the Ring Bearers. And um, one thing we didn't mention was at the end of the Second Age, Valinor, this island, heaven, Mount Olympus, whatever you want to call it, is removed from the physical world. And the only way to get there is to hop on a boat um, at the Grey Havens, where Círdan is the master, and he they take the quote-unquote straight road to heaven. I just keep calling it heaven because that's the way it is. And prior <laughs> to the end of the Third Age, um, it was strictly elves. At the end of the Third Age, all of the ring bearers are allowed to depart. Yep. And the idea of Valinor, and this is kind of the last point I want to talk about before we kind of close things out here, is the idea of the sea. Um, Legolas had never seen the sea until he got to Gondor, and he said that he knew that once he heard the sea, it was going to be in his head the rest of his life because all elves are drawn to the sea. Right. Um, so kind of what does the sea represent? Ooh, good question. <laughs> in two um, minutes, go. <laughs> you know what? Uh, I, I think what it just represents, maybe it's not so much the sea itself, but what remains over it. Right. Um, you know, because in the beginning, as we started with the first stage, the elves were called to come to Valinor. And whether they kind of chickened out 
or they they got there and they came back for the wrong reasons. You know, the idea is is that Valinor is where the elves go when they die, um, or it's where the elves belong if they haven't died. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's actually something interesting about Tolkien's work, and it gets into kind of the religious aspect again. But when when humans die, they don't go to Valinor. They they go somewhere else, and it's and it's alluded to that while Middle Earth was built for the elves, and the elves are of Middle Earth, men are not. Right. And so when the elves die, or when the elves decide that they're done, their time in Middle Earth is done, they go to Valinor, and that's their heaven. But when a human being dies, they go. In my mind, I think Tolkien was trying to get to like a greater heaven, the heaven that's really truly with Iluvatar. Um, because even though the Eldar or the elves were the firstborn, it was the race of man that he gave the gift of free will, mm-hmm. the the gift of uh, uh, and it's it's funny he writes it as a doom, but not as a doom that like you and I might think of it like oh bad things are going to happen, but of a fate beyond this world. Right. So, um, you know, I I think from from an elvish perspective, the sea represents that last stage before you get to go to that that final resting of Valinor and and living with the Valar and being in your heaven, and I think that that's what that means. Definitely. So, Albros, thank you so much uh, for being on the show. It was really awesome talking to you. Well, thank you very much for having me. Uh, I love talking about this stuff and was really happy uh, to come on and, and talk with you and you know get to see some of the insights you had as well. So it was great. I want to thank Albros again for taking the time to chat with me and share his expertise. Be sure to check out his excellent podcast at www.lotrocast.com where he discusses The Lord of the Rings online and all things Tolkien-related. I hope you found this special episode to be informative. The goal was to give you all some reference points for the rich histories of Middle-earth, and I hope we did just that. Remember, you can always head to my blog at lotrobeneathyourfeet.com. There you can subscribe on iTunes or join the Facebook community. And don't forget to tune in in two weeks' time for my next regular episode, where we go beneath your feet at the Great Lake of Evendim. This is Shipwreck, and we'll see you next time on Beneath Your Feet.